Father, we lift up this morning. We lift up your word. Father, your word is always powerful. Your word is always truth. And Lord, the only thing that can get in the way of of the power and the truth would be my poor communication. And Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help me, Lord, to communicate your word, your truth. And Lord, we're relying upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illuminate your word to our eyes, to our understanding. And Lord, I pray that that would happen this morning as we yield ourselves to you and your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would grow us, that you would do that that work, Lord, that needs to be done in our hearts, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 6 covering 11 to 21. We're going to actually finish uh, this first letter of, of Paul to Timothy this morning. I titled this morning's message, O man of God, flee, pursue, and fight. These are, in a sense, Paul's closing words to his son in the faith, Timothy. You see, Paul was used by God to lead Timothy to a saving faith. And Paul invested himself into this young man. He saw the potential. He felt the leading of the Lord to invest himself in Timothy. Timothy was probably half the age of Paul. And he, in Paul's perspective, he was just a young man. He was a a young pastor, so to speak, at this point as he's writing this letter to Timothy. He was a bishop there in Ephesus, which just simply meant he had this oversight over the various churches that were in the city of Ephesus, as well as the surrounding areas there in Asia Minor. And God was using Timothy in a very difficult place to minister to be that lead pastor. And so he would have been giving instructions to the various elders that were leading these small fellowships that were scattered around the city. Paul started this letter in 1 Timothy, uh, excuse me, in chapter 1, verse 2. He says to Timothy, and he calls him a true son in the faith. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. And those three words, grace, mercy, and peace, Paul says, Timothy, you need these things to minister. You and I need these things as Christians in general to minister, to do anything for the Lord. We need His grace. We need His mercy. His mercies are new every day. We need the peace of God to surround us in our ministries and in our lives And you know what? It all gives glory to God because you know what? It's God doing it in you and me. It's not me doing it. It's God in you. Paul's trying to encourage Timothy to rely upon this grace, rely upon this mercy, receive that peace as you're ministering uh, Timothy and you're not always doing it exactly and you you might mess up at times, but God, live live in that peace, Timothy. In verses, verse 18, 
Paul says to Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He calls it a good warfare in the first chapter. This good warfare that, in a sense, all of us are engaged in. If you've given your life to Christ, then you have engaged or become engaged in this warfare that Paul calls a good warfare. It's going to lead to something good. We minister in very difficult times with difficult people at times, but it's a good warfare because the result of it will be good and it'll be lasting. And so press on, Christians. That's really what Paul is wanting to encourage Timothy. Press on. Keep fighting the good fight. I also want to remind you a couple of key verses in this letter. Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, Timothy, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. He says it's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the ground of truth. That you might know yourself, Timothy, how the church of God should operate. How the church of God should be organized. How it should work, Timothy. That's why Paul was writing, if you want to say, this instructional letter to a young man that was learning, getting his feet wet, learning what it is to minister in a difficult surrounding. And Paul is wanting to encourage him with this letter. Paul had a, a, this love for Timothy. Uh, it appears in, in such a way that when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, he says in verse 19, he says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. This is what's pretty incredible about Timothy and the relationship that he had with Paul is that Paul says, I, if I'm going to send somebody to you to go and visit you, disciple you, teach you, instruct you, I want to send Timothy. Because of, out of all the various servants that I minister with, Timothy is one of these men that if I send him, he's going to represent me just the way that I would want to be represented. Timothy, he says of him, he says, there is no one like-minded like Timothy. There's no one that will sincerely care for your state, Paul says to him. For they all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ. But you know that Timothy, that he has, have a, has a proven character. Could you say that of yourself? That you have a proven character. That a, as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. In other words, Timothy came right alongside Paul in that work of taking the gospel out, planting churches. He was right there with the Apostle Paul. That says something highly of Timothy's character and the man of God that he was turning out to be. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul gave Timothy a series of exhortations, but he also encouraged him uh, he says, let no one despise your youth, Timothy, 
But be an example to the believers in word. Be an example, Timothy, to them in the things that you say. This is an exhortation from Paul. He says, also be an example in your conduct, Timothy, the way you live. Not just what you say, but how you live. Be an example. And also be an example in love. That love that has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. He says to Timothy, let your love show forth out of your life. Let it be an example that you're really a child of God. Let that example come out in spirit. And let that example come out in your faith. And in your purity also, Timothy. He says all of these areas of your walk, it's important. It's what makes you a man of God or a woman of God is when people see these things in you. He says, till I come, Timothy, give attention to reading. He's talking about the oral reading of the Word of God. Give your attention to exhortation and to doctrine. And do not neglect the gift that is in you, Timothy, which was given to you by prophecy, by the laying on of hands of the eldership. I hope that everyone here knows your place in the body of Christ. If you're calling Calvary Chapel Fellowship your church, and I believe that God has already given you a gift or gifts of how you can minister in the body of Christ. You already have it. He gave it to you the day you gave your life to Christ. Sometimes Christians don't know for a while what their gift is or what their gifts are. But you need to seek God on that. You need to know what your gifts are and then you need to use them. And like Paul is telling Timothy here, Timothy, don't neglect it. If you know your gift and you're not using it and you're neglecting it, then God's going to raise somebody else up and he's going to bring somebody else into that place to do what he wants to do. He says, meditate on these things, Timothy. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. You see, progress is important for all of us as Christians. You know, for somebody to actually see your life and see that you're actually growing stronger in your faith, maybe they led you to the Lord. Maybe they didn't lead you to the Lord, but they're getting to know you more and more. And they've, been, they've known you for a long time and they see your progress. They see how you've grown, how you're maturing. How about if they don't see it? How about if you've been a part and and no one can see any progress? That's not a good place to be. That they may see your progress, that it may be evident to everyone, not to our glory, but to his glory. And then he says this, take heed to yourself, Timothy, and to the doctrine, continue in them for in doing doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The importance of God's Word. The importance of the teaching of His Word. The importance of you knowing sound doctrine or having good teaching. It's important for all of us. And so now let's look, and let's close out this first letter. Let's look at these final instructions and exhortations that Paul is going to give to his son in the faith, Timothy. Look at your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 11. He starts out and he says, but you, O man of God. Let's go ahead and insert, but you, O woman of God. You see, this letter speaks to men and women. He's just writing this letter to Timothy. But you could say, 
a woman of God. And I think it's important to note that he called him a son in the faith in chapter 1. And then in the last chapter of this letter, he says, O man of God. Uh, what What a title to have. A man of God. A woman of God. Uh, to, to, to really, with a clear conscience, be able to say to yourself, I am a man of God. I love God. I want to follow God. I want to walk in His ways. And as a woman, the same way that I want to, I want to be that kind of man or woman of God. He says, flee these things and pursue or follow after, some of your translations might read, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Now he says to flee these things, he's talking about things that he previously said to Timothy in this letter. Flee those things that are ungodly, we could say, and pursue after those things that are godly. That's what's important. You see, the whole Christian life is about fleeing and pursuing. We need to get away from those things that are ungodly, those things that drag us back, those things that trip us up. We need to take them before the Lord, repent of them, get them right, flee those things. But then we need to pursue. We see, and if you looked and did a search on this, you'll see that there's a number of men throughout the Old Testament and in the Scriptures that are referred to as a man of God. That'd be a, that's just a, a great title for any one of us to hold to. That somebody might say that of you. Moses was a man of God. King David was a man of God. Many of the prophets were referred to as men of God. And you know what? And they weren't perfect. And nor are you or I perfect. But they were still men of God. It was evident that they were a man of God. When those prophets came onto the scene of each city and whoever they were prophesying to, they thought of them as, this is a man of God. This is a prophet that is coming to speak on behalf of God. A man of God. Paul says, flee those things that will keep you from being a man or a woman of God. Or stop sinning. Or stop compromising. Or let go of that pride. Or let go of covetousness. And and any other thing that is not doesn't fall in character with what a godly man or a woman is. Let those things go. Run away from them. When you're convicted of them, repent and get it right, and then flee from it the next time. Paul says, flee those things. You get the picture in your head, don't you? Somebody fleeing away from sin? And even secret sins? Sins that nobody sees? We need to flee even if people don't see it. Why? Because it hurts our Lord. 
That's what that's our motivation in fleeing. Paul wrote to Timothy, and we'll get into this in the second letter, but 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. He says to Timothy, flee also youthful lust. And think of Timothy as a young man. Flee youthful lust, Timothy, but pursue righteousness. Pursue after faith, pursue love, pursue peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He exhorts him really the same way in the second letter. He's wanting to see Timothy grow and do well. He's wanting to see this young man continue on, not go backwards, but go forward to pursue after these things. I think one of those examples that we're, most of us are familiar with of a godly man was when Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. He literally ran out of the room. She's still got his cloak. Runs out naked, out, you know, I mean, whatever. He, she, and he flees the presence of this woman that's trying to make advances towards him. That's a picture of a godly man. There was no one else there. And he fled. And then she tried to trap him because she was mad. And he didn't care. He fled. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul wrote, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's something about sexual immorality that is very devastating to the Christian. It's why Paul, in a number of occasions, makes point against the specific sin of sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, Paul wrote this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from anything that's in your life that is taking precedence over God. What could that be? Could it be your job? Could it be material things? Could it be a, a, a relationship? Could it be, it, it could, anything can fall into that blank if it takes precedence over God. Anything. And so, flee idolatry. Don't just get it hung up in your mind that we're talking about some statue set up in your house somewhere. We're talking about anything that takes the precedence in your heart. Anything that's mounted up in your heart that takes precedence over God really is idolatry. Why is God like that? Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons is because the Bible says He's a jealous God. And not jealous in the sense of how we were. Jealousy can be a sin and wrong. He's jealous for your affection. He wants everything from you. He wants your all. He wants my all. He doesn't want just a bit of us. Blessed are the pure in heart, which could simply be put, blessed are those that are undivided in heart. 
I don't have half my heart in the world and half my heart trying to follow God. Pure in heart means I'm giving Him my all. In verse 11, Paul says in our text, pursue or follow after righteousness. Follow after godliness. Faith, love, patience, and gentleness. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul wrote that we're to pursue love. We're, we're to desire spiritual gifts, but ultimately we're to pursue after love. And especially that you may prophesy. So pursuing love as a Christian. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good both for yourself and for all. Do it for others too. Pursue the things which make for peace. You know, a peacemaker. Somebody that comes in and you're always that kind of person that is seeking to establish peace in a maybe hostile setting in a situation with an individual. You're, you're the kind of person that this, your integrity tells you to do it. To, you want to see peace. Whether that's in a marriage relationship. Whether it's at work. At church. We actually have to seek peace at church at times. We have to pursue it. Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. That's what we're to pursue. This word pursue, to give you a little bit of a a broader understanding of the word, it means to follow zealously after something. It means to press press hard towards something. To run swiftly in order to catch a person or catch a thing. So that's what Paul is saying here when he's talking about pursuing these things. The actual verb conveys a picture of an intense, diligent, and determined and eager effort to pursue after something. That sounds like it's exhausting, isn't it? That means that everything within me, that I'm actually making this kind of effort towards it and towards this godly character. It's what we're called to do. And God says, you know what? You don't have to do it in your own strength. That's the good news. I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've given you my, the power to be able to, to do what I'm calling you to do. And you'll see that change in your life. Actually, part of that definition, a word picture that is given to it, it's like that hunter that goes out with his hunting hounds. And he's, those hounds run tirelessly pursuing after that fox. Do you, do you get the picture of what Paul is saying there with the word pursue? And do you realize that what he's saying there, it comes back on you and I that we have a part in this? That we can't say to God, you know what, God, if you want me to change, you're going to have to make me. 
You know, I mean, if you want me to change and you're going to have to, you know, hammer him. Well, he will. He knows how to get our attention, doesn't he? But so much easier, so much, you know, to, to pursue something by choice because I want to. This word pursue that Paul uses here, it's also a command. It's not something God says, you know what, if you feel like pursuing these things, then please do it. It's actually a command. He commands us to continuously and volitionally choose to press after these things. And I like this part of, it, of the definition. It's a habit of your life. It's my habit. It's what I continually want to do. Do you get that picture now about pursuing? It's important. So we're to pursue righteousness, which actually speaks also of our integrity as Christians. And it also has to do with dealing with our fellow men, fellow women. You see, when you gave your life to Christ, you became what? Righteous. Not your righteousness, but His righteousness that was given to you. You were made righteous when you gave your life to Christ. You became this new creation in Christ Jesus. And you stood righteous in the sight of God because of His righteousness. But then we're called to pursue after practical righteousness. You see, positionally, He's done it all. Practically speaking, you have a part. I have a part. And so we might call that practical righteousness. We might call it experiential righteousness. In other words, God cares about the way we live and what we do from day to day. How we interact with people in the church and outside the church has to do with our walks with Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, for you were once darkness. Have you thought of yourself as that in your past? You were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. So there's obviously people that can. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. His righteousness given to you, but he who practices righteousness. Don't ever let anyone kind of lead you astray that God's just okay with you coming to church and knowing you're saved. There's a lot of that that goes on, isn't there? Maybe we've done that. Maybe we're doing it now. That we think that if we come to church, we, we're doing really all that God requires. You know, I've been here. I mean, I haven't missed in a month. You know, is that all God really wants? He wants more than that. We're also to pursue after godliness. And the word godliness is really God-likeness. Wow, to be like Him. To walk as Jesus walked. 
That's the goal. That's our desire. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, he titled the the sermon, A Form of Godliness. A form of godliness. It's not really godliness, it's just a form of godliness. And he gave several descriptions of true godliness. But he first asked the question, What is that power, asking a question? God himself is the power of godliness. The Holy Spirit is the life and the force of it. God is the source of that power to live godly. The Holy Spirit is what works through you, in you, and through you unto godliness if we're listening to the Holy Spirit. If we're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us, convict us, and do what he does best, godliness will come forth. Godliness, Spurgeon goes on to write, is the power which brings a man to God and binds him to him. Godliness is that which creates repentance towards God and faith in him. Godliness is the result of a great change of heart in reference to God and his character. What I once knew about him, I've come to know that it's a lot more. I I know of his godliness in a greater way than I ever have. Godliness looks towards God and mourns its distance from him. Have you ever felt far from God, gotten away from God, and it felt so uncomfortable, and when you finally came back, oh, there's peace again. And God renews it once again. But a godly man, when he gets away from God, that's the way King David was, when he sinned with Bathsheba and he got away from God and he sinned and went down this cycle of all this sin, but when he came back to the Lord, God restored. He was a man after God's own heart. He knew how to get his heart right with God. Godliness leads to consecration to sanctification, to concentration. The godly man seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Godliness makes a man commune with God and gives him a partnership with God. And and he prepares him to dwell with God forever. You see, you're all a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. What he started in you, he's going to complete. When you sit with the Lord, when you stand before the Lord someday, on that day, he's preparing you for it. You see, he started the work, and when you stand on that day, he already sees the finished product, by the way. Don't you wish you could see the finished product? (laughs) Just think, it'd probably scare us. Because I'm not sure what that finished product will look like on that day. Maybe it won't be quite as glorious as I had in my head. You know, when I stand before Mount, I'm going to be, wow. You know, maybe not. We have to examine. We have to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to bring that stuff to the surface so that we walk in holiness and godliness and godlikeness. He finished with these words. 
Many who have the form of godliness are strangers to his power. I like that. They have a form of godliness, but they are strangers to his power. And so are in religion, they are worldly. In prayer, they're just mechanical. In public, they're one thing, and in private, they're another. True godliness lies in spiritual power. And as they are without this, they are dead while they live. Wow. Living a life as a Christian with no godliness, no character change, nothing really, you know, professing to be godly, saying I'm godly, but denying the power the substance of that power in our life. That's a dangerous place to be in, church. To say that you are and not be walking, not be desiring to live. It's a dangerous place. You see, I've said this before, God always wins. If you think that you're kind of getting by with things, it won't. It will catch up to each one of us. God always wins wins. And the reason he wins, it's always for your benefit and your good. He chastises those whom he loves. And I'm thankful for that. It's because he loves you that he does it. We're called to pursue faith, which also means faithfulness and dependability. Anybody wrestle with that? Being faithful, being dependable, It can also mean our trust in God to pursue after faith. That we need to pursue faith in our daily circumstances. Are you pursuing Him as things are heating up? As things are difficult in life? Are you pursuing it? That faith in the middle of your trials and tribulations. Not just when things are good. You know, when everything's going well, no conflict, nothing going on, no trials, you know, man, I'm really pursuing, man, I'm just, I'm in there, I'm right there with the Lord. How about in the middle of it? How about when things are tough? Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Do you run to your Word? Do you run to that time of devotion when things are tough? Or do you stay away from it when things are tough and you only have your times of devotion, times of hearing from the Lord, times in His Word when things are good? We need to be ones that are pursuing faith all the time. We're also called to pursue love and the love that he's talking about here is agape. It's that unconditional, sacrificial love that God demonstrated towards us on the cross. He says, I want you as a Christian to pursue after it. I want you to to increase the more and more in your love towards me and also your love towards one another. That pursuit of love growing in your life is going to happen as you yield yourself to God in obedience to His Word. That love relationship that you have in your heart towards God is going to grow and mature and mature. You know how it is when you're children, when they're doing everything right, and they just feel like they can run up to mom. But man, when they're lying to you and they're doing things, you know, they want to distance themselves from you, and they kind of, you know, you know, 
it's so wonderful to have a heart that you can come before God and know that he loves you and you love him and that love relationship this way is growing and growing and growing. And that pours out onto this relationship, this love for other people, the unlovely people in this world begins to grow. We need to pursue love in our walks as Christians. It's been said that agape, that word love in Greek, agape is a lifelong pursuit. It's not an arrival. It's a lifelong pursuit, not an arrival. You're not going to arrive. You're not going to obtain. You're not going to come to some place where you fully grasp the love of God. This is how we perceive the love of God, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought also lay down our life for one another. 1 John 3.16 It's a lifelong pursuit as a Christian to know His love in a greater way. And to also grow in that love relationship with one another. We're also to pursue patience which could also speak of being steadfast. It's really endurance. It's, it could be translated endurance under trial, that we would be patient. We live in a fallen world. We live in a difficult world, a complicated world. But God, that I would be patient, that I would endure, that I would run the race, that I would fight the good fight, that I wouldn't give up, that I wouldn't turn back, that I would pursue patience. In my walk with you. The word patience actually means to stay, to remain, to abide. It literally means abiding under something. It portrays the picture of, of steadfastly and unflinchingly bearing up under a heavy load and describes that quality of character which does not allow one to suffer or excuse me, to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial or to pursue it. Make effort towards it. God, would you build that patience and that endurance in me that I would remain? In short, this word steadfastness, this word patience, in the face of difficulty... It doesn't give up. It won't give up. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is first love. And then what comes out of that love is this. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. It's the fruit of the Spirit in you. Pursue after gentleness, which describes our composure or our calm disposition that we can have as a Christian. Pursue after gentleness. It's, it, it's having that relationship with people, being gentle in spirit, meek, you know, humble. You know how Jesus came meek and humble? And, and he came into this world to serve, not to be served. 
And they, and they had this about, we're to pursue this. Gen- I don't think that Jesus was all harsh and just, he was gentle and lowly. And he came riding into Jerusalem on that day on the back of a colt. And what, what did they do when he was like that? They lifted him up. Our king, Hosanna. And it's what we should do as Christians, to pursue gentleness. Let me ask you a question. How are you pursuing these things? I think you'd have to sit in front of that verse and you'd have to ask yourself the question, how am I pursuing these things in my personal walk? You can't do anything in your walk without Christ. Just know that. If you try to muster it up, you know, I'm going to start doing all these things. Today, you're probably going to set yourself up for a fall. Lord, I can't. That's okay. God, I can't do this. But God, I know you can do it in me. And I want you to do it in me. And if you'll yield to God in that fashion, God will do it. All you need to do is have the will and the desire to pursue it. Pursue it. Make an effort towards it. Be diligent about it. And then say, God, would you work it in me? And he'll do it. Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Lay hold on eternal life, Timothy, to which you are also called and have confessed. And here he calls it the good confession. (laughs) The good confession, the good fight, the good confession. He says, and you've done it in the presence of many witnesses. What's your witness? What's your good confession before this world? To fight is not specifically talking about going out and getting into a physical fight. It's actually translated race in Scripture also. You know, like getting into the Olympic races. Like getting into a a track race. Fighting the good fight is really just getting into the race and then staying in the race. That's the important part. Getting into the race and then staying in the race. You know, how many Christians fall away, fall from their faith, get shipwrecked, turn aside, get swayed by the things of the world? To stay fighting the good fight and to stay in the race is what we're called to do. Can you do it on your own? No. God will help you in that if you stay dependent on Him. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. Hebrews 12.1. It's translated. That word's translated race. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking of all these Old Testament men and women, these great examples, then let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Where's your race? Where's your race leading to? Are you in the lane? Are you stepping out of the lane? Are you staying in the race? If they're running that track and they're on the course and all of a sudden they jump off the track and they go into the middle of the field, they just got out of the race. We get out of the race when we set our our desires 
aside, to follow wholeheartedly after Christ, we get out of the race. We might get back into it, but so much better to get on the course and to complete the race. Fight the good fight, Christians. It'll be lasting. It'll give fruit in the end. We don't even realize what all of that is going to look like on that day. Lay hold on eternal life, Christians. Paul in his second letter also to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 7, he says this about himself. Paul, we're going to learn when we get into that second letter, he's about ready to lay his head down on the block to be beheaded. His day has come and he knows that his time has come. He's in Rome. He's in prison. He knows it's just not too long off. They're going to put his head on the block and he's going to be beheaded for his faith. And then he writes this to Timothy to encourage him. I have fought the good fight, Timothy. I have. He's talking as if his day is here. I have fought the good fight. And I have finished the race. There's that word. And I have kept the faith. He's saying I have past tense. It's already done. I got into this race and I'm finishing it well. That's the way we want to. Or at least should. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.26 He says, Therefore I run thus. He's talking. Paul must have loved the the races. He must have loved to run. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. You ever seen you know, just beating the air? You know? But I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Think of that thought. To discipline your body... To bring it into subjection, lest when you've preached to others, you're disqualified. How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, you know, to, to discipline your body. Your body wants to do what it wants to do. Amen? I mean, it just, it, it wants to sin, it wants to, you know, it wants to do these things. But in my heart and in my mind, I don't want to do those things. And so what we yield ourselves to is what we're going to give in to. And and many times it takes us taking drastic measures to to discipline this thing. You know, I I mean, if if you're struggling in some area and you know that you're doing something that aids in that struggle, cut it off. Flee from it. Stop doing it. And then you'll start seeing the victory. Don't do it in your own strength. Say, God, help me in this area. And then look for a victory shout as you pursue it. Verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God, Paul says to Timothy, who gives life to all things. I like that. God gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession... Before Pontius Pilate, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, that was a good confession. Just read his words as he stood there before Pontius Pilate, knowing that what was going to come out of all of this was going to be glorious. 
Do you and are you convinced that what's going to come forth out of your life as you make that witness for Christ, as you make a bold statement for your faith around people that don't like what you stand for, are you willing and wanting to be a witness for Christ and to have this good confession before this world? He says in verse 14 that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ appearing. He's coming back, church. Jesus Christ is coming back. I'm 100% convinced, and I hope you are, that he's going to return, and I want to be spotless. I want to not be caught off guard. I don't want him to come as a, as a thief in the night, me being caught off guard, unaware, and then the Lord comes. Blameless. That's not perfection, because we know in these bodies we can't obtain it. Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Thank you, Lord. In his own time, he who is the blessed, and then Paul breaks out like he's done. This is the third time he's done this. He breaks out into this, we might call it a song or a, a, just a praise from his heart. Look what he writes. He says, he who is the blessed and only potentant, how do you say that? Thank you. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Just think on those words for a while, what that means. I see Paul, as he's writing these letters quite often, all of a sudden just get overwhelmed inside as he's writing practical things to Timothy, and then he starts writing down these things. Wow, he's just like, it's like him erupting into a a worship time. The three hymns that we see in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul broke out into one of these. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That was just in the middle of him writing to Timothy. Wait a minute, Timothy. Let me me get something out here for a moment. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, it's a mystery of how we've become what we are, isn't it? I mean, look what God has done. Look what we used to be and look what we are now. The mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up in glory. It's the whole glorious gospel right there. Paul just breaks out into this praise. And then in our text here where we're reading... Paul then goes back in verse 17 and 19, talking about the, after this whole thing of praise before God, he talks about the pitfalls of riches. Look what he says to Timothy. Remember and keep in mind that Ephesus was a very wealthy city. There was a lot of materialism there. there was a, it, this, this would have been the city, probably like, you know, I don't know what we'd compare it with, but it, New York. We're living in some wealthy area, a lot of, you know, a lot of wealth and riches there. So he has to address it. 
and he brings it up again. Paul, in verse 17, he says, command those who are rich. Uh, Prior to this, he talked about those that were desiring to be rich. Remember last week? They had this desire to be rich. Being rich is not the problem. That's not the problem. It's when we have a desire, something driving us to be rich. Now he's talking to those who are rich. And he says, rich in this present age. In other words, now. Not to be haughty, nor to trust in, look what he calls them, uncertain riches. Wow. It's not as certain as I thought. You know, uh, riches, they're fleeting. You know, things break down. No good anymore. We've got to buy a new one. You know, it's what we put our hearts and minds upon. Nor trust. Those that are rich, don't trust in uncertain riches. Psalm 62 tells us this. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Don't let it draw you away. Let them, verse 18, those who are rich, in other words, do good. That they may be rich in good works. And look what it says of those that are rich. That they may be rich in good works. That's the first thing. We want to be rich in those things, not material. You know, if your whole identity is in the fact that you've been successful and you got all this stuff, but you don't have any good works that have taken a lot of labor to get there, go for the good works, not for the stuff. And then look what he says to those that are rich, that have been given the responsibility of taking care of God's money. Ready to give and willing to share. Wow, I didn't know you put that one to me, God. I thought it was all mine. I earned it. It's all mine, isn't it? No, it's all God's. He just put it into your account and said, now I want you to use it as I lead you to use it. Ready to give, willing to share, storing up for yourself a good foundation for the time to come. Do you see that? Do you see where it's all going to lead? What we do here, what we store up here, what we do here now, it's all going to burn. It's all going to be gone. But how about the good works? How about what's going to hit that fire on that day of judgment when Christians stand before the Lord? Those things that come out of that fire, the purification of that fire, God says, I'm going to reward you for it. Every single thing. How much effort, how much diligence do you put into good works versus obtaining material things? that you may hold or that you may lay hold on eternal life. In Luke 12, Jesus warned in the parable of the rich fool. And we're almost done. He says, Teacher, tell my brethren to divide the inheritance with me. Somebody came to Jesus out of the crowd and asked him this. Jesus responded to him, Man, who made, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? This is Jesus speaking to this man. Jesus says to him, Take heed and be aware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. 
Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? I'm running out of room in these buildings. So he said, I will do this. I'm going to tear down, I'm going to pull down these barns, and I'm going to build greater barns. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God says to him, you fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then then whose will those things be which you have provided? Everything you have right now. It's all going to burn. It's all, you know, somebody else is going to have it. If you pass on tomorrow, you know, everything you've acquired, you know, it's all, somebody else is going to use your stuff. So he, so he finishes by saying, he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. Paul concludes in verse 20 and 21. He says, O Timothy. You see the exclamation mark? That that gives me an idea that there's a little bit of an intensity of what he's about to say to him. O Timothy, my beloved son in the faith, one that I have just this desire to see you continue on and stay in the good fight. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and the idle babblings and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That word knowledge can also be translated science. It's all the philosophers. It's all the people that want to sit around and debate and talk about all these things that lead nowhere and go nowhere. And that city of Ephesus was full of that pagan stuff and Gnosticism and all the things that were prevalent in the day. And we have them in our day. These profane, idle babblings. And it's falsely called knowledge. That's what the Gnostics took pride in. We have this kind of this special knowledge that nobody else has. Some of the church was getting mixed up, caught up into it. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard those things. And he says, by professing it, some have strayed. Some have erred. It literally means to miss the mark here. He says, professing it, some have strayed. They've missed the mark concerning faith. Grace be to you, Timothy. Amen. Paul's letter to Timothy. A needful letter for the church today. A needful letter to Timothy in his day. The New Living Translation reads, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. We have to guard ourselves. In a sense, what this is saying here to us as Christians, as a church right now, 
Guard the stuff, Christians. Guard it. Don't let people rob from God's word, rob the truth, take away from what it was intended to be. And there's a lot of it out there, a lot of babbling going out there. Guard the stuff, church. Guard the word of God. Guard the doctrines of scripture. Stay true to what God has called you to do. Pursue after godliness. Pursue after these things. Don't get caught up into all the vain babbling and discussions of things that go nowhere. Let's have, uh, let's have the worship team come up.